0: Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. When the Pharisees accuse Jesus of being in league with Beelzebul, Jesus slams them by exposing a fatal contradiction in their logic. If the only way I am able to cast out demons is by Beelzebul, how are your sons able to do it? I'll tell you how. If you are right and I am in league with Satan, then so are your sons. But if I am in league with God, then the kingdom of this God is upon you and you have chosen the wrong side. Truly, I say to you, I will not relent until your strong man is bound in chains and your house has been plundered. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, verses 22 to 29. You're listening to the Bible as Literature.
1: this is Father Mark Bulos and this is Dr. Richard Benton
0: and you are listening to episode 294 of the Bible as literature podcast we have been working through the gospel of Matthew step by step last week we talked about the importance of not engaging in a pointless conversation. In the Gospel of Matthew, a pointless conversation is any speech that does not reflect or serve the advancement of the content
1: of Scripture. The corollary to that is that Jesus isn't lambasting the people. He will come out forcefully when he teaches, But he only engages with others if it's furthering the teaching. If he runs up against a wall, then he stops and he moves. He doesn't just stop talking when he's engaging with these people and it's going nowhere. He leaves because he's looking for a new audience. He needs to find soil where the seed can take root and bear fruit. And he's not going to keep hacking away at a rock. To plant a seed.
0: It's noticeable here as we move forward in Jesus's ministry in the Gospel of Matthew that the first character that he encounters is a demon-possessed man. We've explained many times on this podcast how someone who is demon-possessed is animated by a false teaching. A false teaching brings false signs and false wonders. So not only is Jesus here in this chapter in Matthew refusing to engage with the Pharisees because it is pointless and fruitless, and there is work to do, but that work, starting in verse 22, is the undoing of what the Pharisees have done through false testimony. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw... As always, someone who was animated or energized by a false teaching, once they are healed by Jesus, they are suddenly able to speak. And the fact that Jesus animates him with the biblical instructions so that he can speak and, by extension, see correctly—the eye is the lamp of the body— It's striking when you look back to verse 16, where Jesus warned people not to talk about who he was. Here, he has healed the man so that he can speak, where he's asked others to keep their mouths shut.
1: Because it's about the teaching, it's not about the wonderful act that he's performing. Matthew squeezes the entire healing into one verse. The healing is one verse, and the teaching is the rest of this pericope.
0: The man isn't amazed by what he sees. He is animated by what he hears so that he can speak and see correctly. Speaking the content of Scripture and seeing things correctly are linked, because when you hear, you are empowered by Jesus to speak correctly. It corrects your understanding of the world around you. And remember, when we explained sight in the ancient world, we explained that it was understood as a projection of the mind onto the world in much the same way that a modern projector projects photons onto the wall so that you can see what's in front of the light. So keep this in mind, that this is all about correcting our speech and correcting how we see the world, putting the correct light in us so that we can obey the commandment and walk according to its precepts. This is what's amazing. And in verse 23, Richard, all the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? They should be amazed at what is being spoken, but they're still focusing on the identity of Jesus, which he was poo-pooing in verse 16. And we just heard this week on the Tuesday program with Father Paul, that Jesus keeps denying the title Son of God, Son of David, because he is a Son of Man in the spirit of Genesis chapter 5, meaning he shuns power, he shuns the kingly throne. Remember, he is the shepherd king in Matthew. Exactly,
1: because in the last section, Matthew said that this is the servant as described in Isaiah, And now everyone's saying, oh, isn't this the son of David? Because this wimp—you know, we talked extensively last time about the wimpiness of Jesus as manifesting a power that human beings can't understand— they're looking for the power they can understand, which is the son of David, meaning the next king in line. They want an earthly king. Oh, this guy can cast out demons. He must be the best king ever. And Jesus has to keep repeating over and over again throughout this entire book that you don't understand what it means to be a king. You don't understand what actual authority is. You don't understand what actual strength is. Actual authority and actual strength come from submitting to God's authority and strength, and that's what the Isaiah passage is describing, but all they see is, oh, cool, the guy healed a withered hand. Cool, the guy cast out a devil. Cool, this is awesome. We'll follow him, because they want the strength. I mean, how easy is it for human beings to follow the one who is a tough guy, As opposed to one who submits to doing what the right thing is, even if it makes him look bad, simply because it's the right thing to do.
0: But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. This is a problematic statement on many levels. First of all, they're lying. Second of all, they're manifesting their misunderstanding of the problem of David's throne. Because in Scripture, the one who asserts power—and remember, Matthew has been dealing with Isaiah in this section, and in Isaiah, all glory is consigned to God, the Lord of hosts, the Father of Jesus— And no other glory is allowed to stand out upon the earth, which means that the king in Isaiah is an affront to God, as he is throughout the biblical story. And that king is the functional Satan. That king is the ruler of demons in Scripture. So Jesus is not claiming the title son of David in Matthew, and they're accusing him of being the ruler of demons, which is, in fact, what the one who sits on the earthly throne is doing. They are manifesting, in scriptural terms, satanic power.
1: As they manifest this satanic power, it's a very strange assumption that the Pharisees have. Why would they say that only the prince of demons can cast out demons? Why only the leader of demons? One would assume that all power would be with God, that God can cast out demons as he wants to. It's almost as if the Pharisees themselves don't recognize the power of God willfully. The Pharisees are saying Jesus is in cahoots with the demons, in the same way that if you want to malign a politician, you say, oh, he's just working for our enemy trying to make us look bad, right? Or if there is a protest against a government you say oh it's foreign governments that just paid those people off to protest or if it's for the government then you say oh the government just paid those people to protest what you want to do is undermine the motives the pharisees here are trying to say that this was somehow staged that by working and colluding with the demons jesus is able to make himself look like he's the son of david jesus is claiming that he is submitting to the power of god And the Pharisees are claiming, no, Jesus is in cahoots with the demons to fool the people into thinking that he's aligned with God.
0: And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? There's a basic common sense to what Jesus is saying. Why would I fight my own agents? What's to be gained? If I attack and cast out my own agents, I'm undermining my own power and my own mission.
1: If Jesus is having to prove that he's a tough guy, that means that the people don't believe that he's a tough guy. If he's having to stage this, or if he's having to fight against his own minions, then there is no strength. The Pharisees think that he's in cahoots or that somehow he's fighting against his own demons. If the only enemy then that Jesus can defeat are his own demons, then he wields no power. If you're a king and the only thing you can do is fight against your own army to show how strong you are, how are you going to intimidate an actual enemy army?
0: If Caesar wants to show his strength in Judea, he will string up people from the local community and crucify them. And that's exactly how Caesar expresses his glory against Jesus in the story of Matthew's gospel. He has him executed. Caesar is not going to express his power and glory against Jesus by executing a member of his court. That makes no sense it makes no sense. If you want to scare a region that you're trying to dominate, you crucify 20, 30, 50, 100 of the inhabitants of that region. You line them up as the Romans did on the road in and out of town so that everybody knows that it is Caesar's glory that you have to contend with. But if it was a row of Roman soldiers executed, that would not manifest Caesar's glory. It would undermine Caesar's glory and his power. This is the point that Jesus is making. And it's especially prescient considering the fact that they are trying to manifest the power of Caesar. The crowds are incentivized because of false teaching to ask whether or not Jesus is the son of David. That question betrays a lust for Caesar's glory. And Jesus is not interested in that glory. He's interested in the glory of his father manifest in Isaiah. If I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges.
1: Your sons are casting out demons. I am casting out demons. Well, if you're saying that the only way I could be casting out demons is because I'm in cahoots with them, then how do your sons, your students, your disciples cast out demons? Following your logic, it should be the same, shouldn't it? Your sons are also in cahoots. You have to be logically consistent. Either anyone casts out demons because they're in cahoots, or anyone who casts out demons is following the teaching of the Lord. Which is it? The Pharisees want it both ways. Our people cast out demons because we're good. You cast out demons because you're bad. This is always the trick that those who are looking for purity run into, because there's always an inconsistency when you're looking to say they are impure and we are pure. You stack the deck so that there's no way that they could be pure and that you're always going to end up pure.
0: For Jesus... Their claim is idiotic, and it's exposed by their very logic. Just by looking at your own sons, you can see that it doesn't make sense. Let them be the judge, meaning it's self-evident. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's clear that what you're saying makes no sense. Let your sons be the judges. It's obvious you're wrong. But if I'm right, you've got a problem because that means the kingdom has come, and the one who is greater than David is present. And that's a very serious matter, because the Lord in Isaiah is the Lord who manifests his glory, and it's a very dangerous thing to tamper with. So be certain, if you make this accusation, that you're not setting yourself up against my father the way David and every other king upon the face of the earth has set himself up against my father. And this is no small claim when you remember that religious authority in late antiquity, as it has been since ancient times, is linked to the divine authority of the king. There is a very serious confrontation unfolding.
1: The confrontation is very serious, and I think that Matthew, in a literary way, and a rhetorical way, formulates this in just a beautiful structure. Jesus takes the Pharisees' assumption that I'm in cahoots with demons and pushes it until he shows that it contradicts itself. Then, in the current verse, he asserts the opposite assumption. I am doing this as a servant of God. I'm doing this by the Spirit of God. Let's assume that, and then let's push that to its logical extreme. And this is where he becomes even more powerful in the way that he attacks. First it was defensive, now it is offensive. I cast out demons by the Spirit of God. So if Your assumption is not the case, then the opposite must be the case. Then the assertion that I've made all along that the kingdom of God is here must be the case because that's what's logical. The teaching is in front of your face. Now, O Pharisees, you have the choice. Do you accept the spirit? Do you accept the teaching? Do you accept the kingdom? Or do you reject it? You decide if you want to be a member. If you don't want to be a member, I'm going to move, but judgment is going to come.
0: And verse 29 brings the threat that exposes god's confrontation with the king in scripture and here with the pharisee or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house the word that's translated as strong man here in the new american standard bible is iskiros which is used in a very common prayer, the tris agion, the thrice holy prayer, where you say holy God, holy mighty, holy immortal. The second title for God in that prayer is agios iskiros, meaning that God is the strong man. God is the mighty one, as it's usually translated. Because the prayer understands what Matthew is trying to emphasize from the biblical canon, that there is one who is mighty, there is one who is enthroned. Be careful in verse 29, because if you now understand that the kingdom of God has come upon you, and you're still making this claim, you are setting yourself up to come into confrontation with that strong man. And it's not Jesus, it's the father of Jesus. Now you're going to bind and crucify his son, so there's a kind of foreshadowing in verse 29. But will that really be a victory? You're going to attempt to plunder his house, but what will you gain from doing so? And can you really defeat the father of Jesus by binding his son? Do you want to enter into that conflict? Because remember, this is the Lord from Isaiah, whose glory flattens everything that stands in its way.
1: The only way it could make sense is if you're binding Jesus and not realizing that he is entering into his father's house. It is not Jesus's house. It is his father's house. So the only way you can actually plunder God's house is if you bind God. He is the strong man. That's the only way of doing it. The other direction is if you bind Beelzebul and spoil his house. In a lot of iconography at his baptism, but also in the resurrection, Jesus does bind Satan. He does bind the demons in order to spoil the house because that's the only other option. If the Pharisees say, oh, you're in cahoots, he says, no, actually, I'm their enemy and I'm defeating my enemy. And not only is it my enemy, it's not some wimp. It's the strongman. I can only take over this house if I bind the strongest one in the house. Obviously, if I I bind the weakest one in the house, then the strongest one's going to come and clobber me over the head.
0: After a revolution, Rich, what's the first thing they always do? They execute the former strongman. You take a city, you kill the head of the city. Even in modern times, whether it's one of the superpowers invading a country, and setting up trials, supposedly by the local people, or it's the local people themselves. The first thing they do is execute the former leader. That's the name of the game. That's what Jesus is calling out.
1: Exactly, Father. He's going after the strong man. That is the goal. It's beautiful the way that St. John Chrysostom describes it in his Paschal Homily, that Jesus tricked Satan by pretending like he was weak in order to get into his house, and then destroying and despoiling the house. Jesus bears a strength and a courage that others can't understand, that others can't see, that others can't recognize, because he looks like the opposite of Caesar. He's following the logic to a certain point, at which point he reverses it and fools the people into understanding what true strength and true glory and true power are so that they will understand how God functions and how God himself is the ruler of all the nations and the judge of all the nations, as opposed to this Caesar who claims to be.
0: Verse 29, Richard, lays the groundwork for the choice that Jesus is confronting the Pharisees with in the story and ultimately the addressee of the text. Who is your strong man? Because if the strong man, the iskiros for you, is the father of Jesus, then you should be afraid because the kingdom of God has come upon you. If you understand your strong man as Beelzebul, which is in a way the accusation that Jesus is making here against the Pharisees that they're serving the wrong master, then you should be very afraid because Jesus is going to enter Beelzebub's house and tie him up and plunder his house. Either way, you lose because the strong man, who is ultimately the father of Jesus, is coming to do the business, and there's no middle ground. This is the gospel of Matthew. You cannot serve God and mammon. There is No gray area. There's no twilight between serving the commandment and serving Caesar or serving Satan or serving any worldly power. And that's exactly where we'll pick up next week, Richard, with the unpardonable sin. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening.